Welcome to another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. In today's episode, Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez discusses the recently published manuscript titled Oscillatory Entrainment Mechanisms and Anticipatory Predictive Processes in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder with authors Dr. Shlomit Becker and Dr. Sophie Mulholm. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. And hi, Shlomit. And hi, Sophie. It's such a great honor to have you for our podcast today. And Sophie, when I read your website, it immediately drew my attention because you say you want to understand how the brain works by studying how the brain, the human brain actually processes and integrates sensory inputs, impacts perception, behavior, mechanism of attention, how speech processing is achieved. And also you study high order cognition related to executive functions. Now, these are very ambitious goals, but I fully agree with you because you use these different approaches together, you know, to get these deep, deep insights, like you use non-invasive high-density recordings of electrical brain activity, sometimes also intracranial recordings from patients, MRI, and you combine it with psychophysics. I think mm -hmm. this is extremely powerful. And it gets you insights into electrical activity, also into rhythmicity and oscillatory activity, which now brings me kind of to the first question, because I think most listeners are not aware how important rhythmic activity is in the brain. And so, so how do you see the role of oscillatory activity in the brain? And could you describe your ideas? Sure. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, thanks for having us. And, you know, just with regard to your going to the website and seeing that overarching, very ambitious set of goals, I'm, I'm sure you have the same experience where you get into one area and you realize you can't think about that without thinking about attention, you know, sensory processing. How does attention affect it? And that brings you to executive function. And they're just also intertwined. And we have these amazing tools to look at these processes. So it's very tempting to, you know, really spread out and think about these things both in separate studies and then bring it together to try and inform our understanding of the human brain and both, you know, how it functions and how it dysfunctions as well in different neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders. With regard to neurooscillations, you know, I first, I, I'm, there are many people who are like, you know, so, so engrossed in this area and that could give you a much more detailed kind of view of it, but so I'll, I'll give you my perspective, which is, you know, we know that in the brain, there's natural intrinsic activity reflecting rhythmic fluctuations of neural excitability. And that's what we're seeing when we see these oscillations. And when a large enough neural ensemble is engaged, we can record this activity at the scalp. And we can do that non-invasively, which is really amazing to give us insight into these processes. And of course, it's important to realize that often whatever we record at the scalp is representing uh, really the sum of activity from multiple different areas. Like we're not, we're not able to isolate a single area like you are with an animal model. But still, we can gain a lot of insight. Into, and then this alone can be studied if we want to really identify how does the brain function differently in say neuro neurodevelopmental disorder by looking at, we can look at atypical neurophysiology, but our approach is really to kind of stress test the brain. So all these different frequency bands, you know, so, so neurooscillations are broken traditionally into five different frequency bands. Um, it's somewhat arbitrary probably, but they do seem to get a so, so alpha, let's say between eight and 14 Hertz approximately does get associated with very specific processes, but it's not like that's all that it represents. And so we need to be very careful when we talk about, you know, people always want to know what, what do the different frequency bands mean? Well, we can associate them with different processes, but they're not specific to that process. So, but what we can do is we can set up an experiment where we basically drive the system. So, so we know we're going to make the person do a task that engages selective attention. 
And now that's going to engage alpha activity selectively, depending how we look at it. Um, so that's really our approach is to drive the brain using different tasks and to look at how it's maybe to test hypothesis about how it's not operating quite right in different clinical populations. And so here, what we wanted to look at is entrainment. And entrainment is a really important aspect of feature of neural oscillation. So the brain doesn't operate in a bubble, right? And we as humans don't operate in a bubble. We interact with the environment. And so you can really think of information processing as an interaction between what's happening in the brain and what's happening in the environment. And of course, what's happening in the brain includes all our history and learning that influences how we interpret inputs from the environment. But an amazing thing is that we're able to take these intrinsic fluctuations in the brain and take advantage of these kind of upstates and downstates, so increased excitability, and match them to rhythmic environmental stimulation. So say you're walking, that's very rhythmic, or somebody's talking, that's a very rhythmic process. And by being able to entrain neural, neural oscillations, so they're in their optimal phase when a stimulus input comes in, so the beginning of a syllable, we'll process it better. And so we're basically aligning intrinsic neural excitability with the environment. So we wanted to see, test the hypothesis that individuals with autism are impaired in their ability to basically align their intrinsic brain processes with the external environment to take advantage of being able to set up the brain so that you're predicting, you're ready for the next input. You're going to process it optimally. Now, that's perfect. Sophie, normally, let's say these slow oscillations or up and down states, they come during the sleep. And I know that the alpha rhythm, if you turn off your eyes and pay, pay attention, they, they disappear. But to what extent are you doing this in an awake? And what kind of rhythms do you see in this awake state that you can analyze? So during awake state, we can basically record all the same frequencies, neural oscillations that we record during sleep states, but the patterns will look different and the power distributions across the different frequency bands will look different and they're affected by the task that you're doing. So if you're doing a task that involves cognitive control, we know that this leads to alteration of activity in the theta band. Um, motor activity leads to alteration in the beta band. Attention, selective attention leads to alteration in the alpha band. But again, this is really broad strokes that we're talking here, but you're not limited just, you know, the, the brain's doing its thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and basically through your methods, you look at the spectrum and how the spectrum changes the frequency spectrum. So maybe can you go deeper into exactly how you analyze this electrical activity and how you, because like I can imagine it's extremely challenging in autistic kids. Okay, I'll take this one. So just to add to what Sophie said about the oscillatory activity in the brain, the oscillatory activity happens all the time. The neurons communicate in different rhythms, which can be observed as oscillations. And those oscillations become more synchronized when the person is engaged with the, the stimuli, uh, which could be internal or external process. And the degree of the coordination between that uh, process and the brain oscillations can be measured by entrainment or phase alignment between those two processes. One of the attributes of this alignment is that it becomes stronger under certain conditions. So for example, when the stimuli are attended by the person, when uh, the stimuli are anticipated or when uh, they require attention. And here uh, in our study, we measure entrainment under a very simple child-friendly scenario where the stimuli are cartooned figures that appear in fixed predictable intervals, um, the children were attentive, and uh, an action was required. Now, with regard to the recording and the analysis, we recorded brain activity from 52 children, 
um, 31 of them were diagnosed with autism and represented this gamified task on a computer. And then we uh, did the analysis offline. We focused on our analysis on frequency and phase measurements uh, of the oscillatory activity in the low frequency range. First of all, before that, we wanted to measure possible differences in evoked responses to the stimulus. And that is to rule out that individuals with autism are impaired in the sensory processing of the visual image per se. But we found that uh, this evoked, evoked immediate sensory um, activity was actually intact in the autism group. So we found no differences between the groups, both of them respond similarly, and the differences that we did find appear actually before each stimulus. So this is what we term uh, the anticipatory processes that uh, we identified that the autism group was impaired at. So this lack or impaired anticipation was apparent for the children with autism and together with the altered phase analysis that we found, we interpreted this as a failure of the children with autism to keep track of the rhythm. Shlomo, thank you so much. And now autism is, is a spectrum, correct? And you find also a lot of variability among the autistic kids. To what extent did you find actually that some are slower and others are faster than, you know, like that it's not an average basically, but, but how do you deal with, with this individual variability? And then when I looked at your data also, you find a lot of variability, individual variability also among the normal kids, the normal developing kids. So, so how did you deal with this whole uh, variability well, it's a very good question, the question of variability in individuals with autism. And I just want to point out that most of the cognitive tasks, including ours, are done on the individuals with high IQ. So with regard to the spectrum of, of autism, this task was done in the higher IQ end of the spectrum. And this is because of the task requirements for a certain level of understanding and uh, performance of the task. But characteristics like uh, rigidity and like repetitive behaviors, which are very related to what we aim to measure here, uh, are part of the diagnostic criteria of the autism disorder. And with regard to variability, many studies report variability in autism, uh, both intrasubject variability and intersubject variability, so um, between subjects and within each subject. So each individual presents a range of results and uh, individuals are also very different from one another. We see both in the behavioral results and in the brain that the people with autism present high variability. And in this sense, it is a problem if we uh, want to try to average their results. Um, I can say that in another study that came out recently, we see that in spite of this variability, when we test children with autism in two different time points, we see a very consistent uh, pattern, very consistent results for each one of them, for each individual, so visual and auditory brain activity, and also behavioral responses were very similar for each individual between time one and time two, that were uh, sometimes even up to uh, 10 months apart. So that made us Think that EEG and behavioral measures in autism can be used as potential biomarkers because they are very stable. Can I just oh, ask yes. Sophie, one thing? Please. Go ahead. Um, it, just with regard to generalizability. So here we have a so-called high-functioning group of children with autism. And what that means generally in the literature is that the IQ is within the normal range or higher, and that their adaptive functioning is, you know, they, they can follow basic instructions and function all right, although not necessarily completely independently, especially in our age group. And so the question of to what extent do the current findings generalize to more severely affected individuals is one that's really difficult to know. It's, you know, we, we hope, of course, that what we learn in higher functioning groups is instructive for lower functioning groups because those are the people that are 
truly impacted by the diagnosis and where, where you really want to develop therapies that can help to improve their daily living and their, their longer-term prospects. So we will adapt the work. You know, basically, we do work in higher-functioning individuals to identify areas that we can then follow up on in lower-functioning individuals because that's a population where the challenges in data recording and recruiting are a little bit greater than mm. for higher-functioning individuals. So we want to lay the groundwork and then kind of work backward to the more affected people and see, you know, is this an important part of the phenotype? So if you are a parent and you have an autistic kid and you find those uh, characteristics that are generalizable, does it give these parents or the clinicians an indication that this will be a high functioning kid later on? Or like, can you use your, your findings to predict the outcome long-term for these children? That's certainly one of the goals, which is to be able to use these biomarkers, basically, that we're able to identify, you know, to, to take somebody and get objective readouts of what kind of therapies would be most useful for this person. Do we have a sense of their prognosis? But we're not there yet. I mean, that, yes, it, it's a long road to, to get there. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> But maybe it would be good if you could summarize some of these key features, these biomarkers that you found that seem to be characteristic for at least these five functioning kids? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to Shlomit. So first of all, as I said before, um, the immediate response to the stimulus was intact in the autism group. It was comparable to the other group. What was different between the groups was the alignment of the synchronicity of the oscillatory activity. We measured frequency and phase, and interestingly, the frequency content was not different between the groups. But in the um, frequency spectral analysis, both groups had a nice peak at 1.5 hertz, which is the rhythm of the visual stimuli, um, which appeared every 600 50 milliseconds. So in other words, the same rhythm echoed in both groups, but what was dramatically different was the alignment. So the phase was less aligned. Uh, their phases, the, those of the uh, ASD group, were not aligned as the control group. This was one feature that was impaired in the group. Specifically on this point, the phase alignment, do you think that you can develop kind of like algorithms that allow you to train this phase alignment that parents and kids sit down with their ch child and then practice phase alignment, just thinking aloud. Yes, you can try longer exposures to longer rhythms. Uh, maybe training or long exposure could enhance this alignment that was impaired. But um, again, we have to remember that this is the most basic isochronous rhythm because we needed a simple rhythm to show to relatively young kids with a developmental disorder. Uh, we needed to keep it simple. So maybe this is even more severe with more sophisticated or complex rhythms. Maybe training um, could help. It's still early to say, though. And, uh, Nino, the, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, non-invasive brain stimulation as a possible approach to trying to increase the pathways, in a sense, to get them more operational. But again, it's, it's you know, we're at beginning stages of knowing just how effective something like that would be. And I would hate for parents to, to take that idea and go, go somewhere and say, okay, now, My, I know my child's brain isn't in training correctly. Let's, let's <laughs> go and try some non-invasive brain stimulation. The basic work needs to be done still before we take that route. But it, it's definitely something to think about. So that leads me a little bit to the question, to, to what extent can you use, let's say, music or breathing to, to start and training rhythms? Because I sometimes, you know, like I work on the neural control of breathing and 
you know, it's used in yoga, etc. And I have the hypothesis that maybe the breathing gives you a timing cue for the brain. And so if the face alignment is all over the place in these autistic kids, do you, do you think that could be an avenue to, again, you don't want to have parents now try around, but what, what is your speculation on that? We, we've actually been talking about this a little bit, and I think it's a very interesting way to think about it, which is if you have atypical neural synchronization or an entrainment, maybe it's a more system-wide event. So if you go and measure breathing or heart rate, response time, perhaps the question is, do, do we find that there's impaired synchronization across the whole system or is it unique to neural activity? And so it's something we want to test. So, so the question, if the breathing system is well aligned and communicating with the other regulatory systems in the human body, then I think that's an excellent approach. And it's one that you know one can do at home and not worry about side effects because breathing is in a calm setting is, you know, I don't think anybody's going to worry about side effects there. But we don't know. And, and this is a, a next question, actually, that Shlomi is really focusing on now is uh, measure, making measurements across the different systems of the body and to see how well synchronized mm -hmm. they are in autism compared to other individuals. And, and what about music? I mean, I know, for example, like Parkinson's disease and, you know, like if you have a certain rhythm beat auditorily stimulating the person, it can help a lot with the movement control. So, so could you imagine that also music can be used? Um, again, it's a very good question. So motor processing is found to be impaired in autism. I'm not sure about moving or dancing, but there are data um, that show that preparation for movement is impaired in autism. And also uh, motor behavior in engaging with unpredictable rhythms. It's also impaired in this population. And in the same sense, other body signals might be impaired. So uh, the study by Rebecca Lawson group uh, shows that pupillometry dynamics are altered in autism um, in volatile environments, for example. So the arousal is different for, for them. Uh, and we have a good reason to think that the impaired entrainment is not limited to the brain or to um, neuro-oscillatory activity, but it could be presented in um, other readouts from, uh, from the periphery. Very oh. interesting. Sh shall I add? Go, please, Sophie. Um, so, so I, I, again, I really love that idea of maybe taking music and movement and using that in a therapeutic way to enhance, you know, being tuned into rhythmicity, even if that is a weak, especially because that's at least movement is a weak, area in autism that we don't understand that well. We just know that clinically there's increased clumsiness. Um, there, there's, and experimentally, there's uh, decreased fine motor control. So this is another area that I think kind of taking a holistic approach could impact not only movement and tuning into the environment, but neural systems. Yeah. And, and, and maybe, you know, that explains why, for example, hippotherapy, you know, when you're riding and you're imposed by the rhythm of the horse or something, yeah. it's helpful yeah. for, for aligning electrical activity in the brain. Now, in your, in your study, you use visual and auditory stimuli combined. Now, to what extent are you now interrogating multimodal processing and, and whether this multimodal processing is also disturbed or did you find characteristic differences here? Well, that, that, that's a, a question near and dear to my heart because multisensory processing is another area of focus for us. And indeed, we found that in autism, there is impaired multisensory integration and a 
remarkably decreased ability to benefit from multisensory cues in a typical way. And, and so you might question, you know, so, so here we used a visual cue to cue an auditory stimulus. And so we, we are relying on communication across the network for the cueing effect. But keep in mind that one of the main thing we were looking at here in the paper is the visual response and entrainment to the visual stimulus and that preparatory activity that the visual cues lead to. But it, it is a, a standing question as to if we used an intersensory design, would we find something different? I'd be inclined to think not because of the processes we were looking at in this case. Yeah, but it's a good question. Uh, tell me, and then you'll find a slower reaction time in, in the autistic kids. Did you expect this? Yeah. It's not that unusual to find a slower reaction time kind of across the board in many tasks. We don't always find it in the lab, but we often find a slower reaction time. And so it was not a surprise at all to us. And we are doing studies in the lab to try and understand motor processing and at what stage might we might this process be leading to a longer reaction time? Even, I mean, here we have such a simple task, right? You're just pressing a button to a tone basically. So it's not any kind of complicated task of reaching for something or opening something that actually requires coordination. So we'd like to know, is it at the planning stage? Is it at the execution stage? Is it the communication across the different networks that's leading to the slowing? But in our particular study, we don't focus on that. Yeah, and, and in a way, kind of the slow reaction time leads me in a way to the next question and that you addressed a little bit already. You know, what does it tell you in neural mechanism terms? Can you tell based on that where in the brain are these disturbances? You know, like cerebellum, basal ganglia, motor planning, cortical processing, et cetera. Yeah, and these are, these are definitely questions that we want to address in, could we look at it in data from this study? We could probably go back and look at, do response log to averaging to, and then get motor potentials and try and understand it. So, so we could consider it, it's difficult to, measure, difficult if not impossible to measure cerebellar activity from scalp recordings mm -hmm. of EEG, unfortunately. And that's where we might consider doing a neuroimaging study where we could gain some greater insight into what role the cerebellum might be playing here. Interesting. And, and you just said something like you find often a slowdown in your reaction time in autism or also in other disorders like ADHD, schizophrenia, or other psychiatric disorders, is reaction time often disturbed or? You know, generally speaking, in our autism data, we do find a, a slowing of reaction times. And I don't think we find it as consistently in other groups. But it, yeah, I'm sorry, I'd have to check that. Yeah, I can't tell you. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's, it's an important question, actually. Is it like a, a general phenomenon? And we've, we've really assumed, or I've assumed, I should just speak for myself, that this is very important in terms of autism because motor atypicalities are some of the first things that can be observed in high-risk infants, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's siblings of people who already have a diagnosis of autism and therefore have a greater risk for going on to get a diagnosis of autism themselves. That's that high risk group. And when you study that high risk group compared to low risk group, you can already see these kind of motor atypicalities. I could imagine that that relates to this impaired neural oscillations and entrainment and the ability to kind of interact with the environment to, to align brain activity with what's happening in the environment already at that early stage. Interesting. I, I think one of the key findings 
of of your study was that the anticipatory response to to the ability to anticipate something was disturbed. Maybe can you elaborate on that? So as we discussed in the beginning of this conversation, the main motivation was to indicate and quantify impaired predictive processing in, aut in autism, uh, which could account for rigidity and for inflexible behaviors in this um, population. I can also say that in recent years, there is an increasing interest in theories that explain the phenomenology of altered communications in autism as disorder of predictions. And according to this, the perception of people with autism is based less on previous experience or on internal models and more on the current experience. And studies, um, including ours, are trying to quantify this uh, impairment. And here in this study, we try to find cortical correlates to this altered predictive processing. Our best indication for it was first the CNV prior to each stimulus, and then again tracking of the rhythm. So these two are the cortical correlates that we found for this impaired predictive processing. Interesting. So you think that this disturbance in predicting the ability to predict an, a future event plays a role also for, for the key features of autism, like problems with social communications or not doing social communication because it's difficult to predict? Um, that's a big question. How to translate findings from our analysis to the general phenomena? And um, it's still hard to conclude from just a few findings, but this is absolutely the direction. So people without autism are described as rigid, uh, they are more responsive rather than predicting, and they are less responsive to cues from the environment. In this sense, what we try to do in this paradigm is to probe these features in uh, these children. I'd just add to that, you know, if that's okay, which is that, you know, it, it's a very appealing theory, this notion that predictive processing is impaired and that the sensory input part of the system or the feed forward part of the system is working well, but it's the ability to take expectation, generate expectations and apply them in a really flexible way that's problematic. And so uh, the kind of classic example that comes to mind is you have the child with autism and they, you always take one route to walk them to school. And now one day, you know, maybe there's some construction or something and you decide to take another route. And they're very disturbed by this disruption of routine. Now, why would that be so disturbing? Well, if you have a hard time building up these maps or you build them up, but then they're rigid, so you can't adjust them easily, that would have clear implications for uh, wanting to stick to your routine because you've laid that down, you know that, and it's hard to come up with another routine and adjust it. And so, and so yes, these, these are kind of beginning support for that idea. If you see that this uh, contingent negative variation, the CNV, is not operating in a typical way. So kind of selectively coming online as you're expecting the target, well, the brain's not using this information as well as it could. In a way, it's also a, a strength, correct? Because uh, you're not distracted by, by things that you predict and, and, and you can perhaps better focus yeah. On, yeah. on the now. Now, would you expect the opposite to be the case in an ADHD kid, you know, like where maybe they're too good in predicting and therefore they're distracted all the time, just speculating. You know, what, what I would do is, uh, I haven't thought about ADHD, but what I have thought about a little bit more is um, schizophrenia. And in terms of the extent to which one literally takes inform sensory information versus interpreting that information and what the balance is there that maybe the about you know in autism the balance is often the direction of being overly literal with the sensory inputs whereas in schizophrenia maybe the balance is off in terms of being overly interpretive of the incoming inputs and 
you know, it's, it's pretty clear how you could relate that to phenotype in either direction. Very interesting. So I know that you discussed uh, some of the limitations of your study in, in your paper. Maybe it would be interesting to, to also mention them now, just to, to see how difficult and challenges you really faced in the study here. Yeah, so there are a few limitations that we can definitely discuss. The first is that understanding any type of altered behavior or mechanism will eventually will need to be linked to the clinical characteristics and the diagnosis of the disorder. But unfortunately, we haven't found correlations between the neural features um, to the autism-related scores, the ADOS or the repetitive behavior scores. Ideally, we would like to see that uh, the severity of the physiological impairment are in line, uh, is in line with the clinical severity of the ASD. But it could be that these clinical measures are not sensitive enough to point on the neuronal deficits that we indicated with our measures. Another limitation is lack of behavioral effects to match the brain effects. Entrainment to the rhythm was accompanied with more coherent, less variable behavior, behavioral reaction times. But except from slower reaction time overall in the ASD group, we didn't find selective effect of the manipulation that we did on the behavior uh, of the groups. We have a few speculations on why we didn't find or why we did find comparable behavioral effects. So, for example, first, the experimental paradigm was very simple. We had to keep the children engaged and alert with a rewarding task. So it could be that the use of supra-threshold bold stimulus caused a ceiling effect so that the behavioral responses were optimal. And such ceiling effect could mask the effect of entrainment on behavior. Another speculation is uh, the current design of the experiment. The experiment is in block design, so that entrainment in the Q block could have been carried into the no Q blocks. So even when no Qs were presented, the children still might have an echoing of the stimuli uh, that occurred before. And this could create some level of entrainment even in the absence of any stimuli and it could mask the interaction of conditions and groups. Thank you so much, Schneid. Sophie, you know, go ahead, I, please. In, in autism, you know, we often, we as a community, not just as lab, often find that you have neural differences in the face of behavioral similarities or ability to for, perform the task without any problem. Now, why might that be? One reason would be that you find alternative strategies. So, you know, you were talking about variability before and, you know, individual participant variability is very interesting. And it's something that we kind of wash out when we do these case control studies. But we know that there are many different ways to perform a task. And so if you've grown up with a mechanism not working the way it does in everybody else, why wouldn't you come up with an alternative way to perform this task? Now, that having said that, that doesn't make it, it's still relevant to find that neural entrainment is not operating well, because this is a fundamental aspect of our brain and how it benefits from the environment and cues in the environment in order to predict what's happening next and to improve our ability to process information. So what that could mean is that the person with autism is able to compensate, but that's taking up a lot of extra resources that could be better spent doing something else. Or, you know, so it's that they're doing okay at those basic stages, but you get to more complex cognitive control and they just don't have as many resources because they've had to spend them doing something else. Wow. I love that. That's really, really good explanation because, I mean, what you're looking at is really a core property of brain processing, which is you exactly. know, like training of timing and generating time. And, and if you spend a lot of resources compensating for the loss of that or that, then an additional task will, will throw you overboard. So that's really interesting. So clinical implications of your study, could you use your paradigm also to see whether certain 
uh, pharmaca or medications work in in autistic kids or not and and how do you control for this if if you have kids that are actually medicated yes i think you could i i think entrainment so so we've shown that entrainment's not operating in a typical way and this represents basic neural processes if you take medications that impact behavior we we also we really we also want to understand how's that impacting neural behavior and the more basic mechanisms and so if we could see if there's a recovery of entrainment in response to certain medications and one I could take a more hypothesis driven approach where you even think about what medication given that we know there's this neural deficit what medication might be most effective um, I think Sophie this is really an incredibly important aspect of your study because typically you try to treat the symptoms you know the phenotype that you see but really the phenotype is a consequence of of problems in neural mm -hmm. processing so so it would be a way more direct effect to look at the neural processing and then expect that this will affect your your symptoms correct so exactly and and another way to think about it is in terms of translational neuroscience. So, you know, we have all these animal models of autism, but as we all know, animal models are tough of clinical conditions, especially when it's not a monogenic disorder. But if we can show that you have the same neural deficit in an animal model as you have in a human with the condition, then you can actually go in and say, okay, what treatments do normalize this process and then possibly trend, you know, get that to the next stage of clinical trials. Yeah, I have a, a very good friend and colleague, John Welsh, who basically used the eye blink response in animals and then went and looked at this in autistic kids mm -hmm. to really go at this question, you know, can we understand the underlying mechanism? And if we can do this in a in a mouse, can we go back from a human to the mouse, etc., and and really look at these core processes? Because after all, you know, like the brain evolved to mm -hmm. anticipate events, and so you're looking at at the key properties, as you say, how the brain works, which which I think is an incredibly interesting paradigm that you're using. Now, what are the next steps from here? We have a few things in mind. So first to understand oscillatory entrainment in great detail in a larger age range and with more sophisticated conditions. Another goal is to evaluate how much entrainment is triggered by internal versus external factors and to test if it uh, remains in the system after the stimuli is off. And finally, uh, another goal is to test if altered al alignment with the environment is not exclusive to the brain and appears in other signals from the body, uh, such as heart activity, pupil dilation, skin conductance, and so on. So these are the major goals for now. Yeah, I think, you know what, as, as Shlomi points out, here we have this relatively basic paradigm because we were working with children. But if we want to really unpackage what's going on there, moving to an adult population with the clinical diagnosis, you know, that they'll, you know, we'll be able to bring them in more often or have longer recording sessions and have different conditions that will allow us to test specific hypothesis to try and better understand what's going on here. So for example, we have a completely rhythmic stimulus. If you think about it in the environment, things are quasi-rhythmic, right? So speech is not like every 200 milliseconds you have a new syllabus onset and walking pace, there's variation in there. So that's the more naturalistic condition. So you know what happens in autism when you have these more natural conditions? And as you increase variance, at what point do they fall off the slope, so to speak, or not? So I think there are some really interesting fundamental questions to get at with in adult populations, but then also taking what we now know 
to think about how can we develop paradigms that are relevant for younger individuals so that it can be used in a potentially informative way at early stages when parents really have all the questions of what's going on here, what's the best treatment. And along those lines, trying to determine what, what are the behavioral characteristics that relate to these basic brain processes. But as we've mentioned, that's really difficult because here we are looking at a fundamental brain process and you look at the behavioral output and there are many, many different things that are going to be influencing that. But that of course is a really critical direction to go in. My God, Sophie, you will be busy for the next years to come. <laughs> and, and I mean, yes. just a little comment on, on the language. There's beautiful work done by, I think, Purple who, who showed that also speech is a rhythm. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. like no matter what kind of language you speak, there are certain frequencies and rhythms in the speech and, and maybe our brain uses those rhythms to, to mm -hmm. entrain and, and, and communicate. So fascinating. I mean, wow, it's a really interesting topic. Now, what are the important take-home messages you want the listeners to remember? So take-home messages are really that we believe that they're basic neural mechanisms that are disrupted, that interfere with the ability to make predictions in a very flexible way. And this is an important area of research. And, you know, that maybe even a one, one study or five studies are not enough, but, you know, one with enough compelling evidence, maybe that's relevant therapeutically to, you know, help the child think, okay, can I start thinking two steps ahead? Because, you know, we assume when we interact with somebody that they have certain, their brain's working in a way that's similar to ours. So it's only in understanding how it's working differently that you can then help them in areas that are impeding them in everyday tasks. So, you know, you think about going to make a sandwich, sandwich, you might say, okay, well, think about the five steps, not just the next step, but think it through before you start. And it's going to be much easier for you, just for a trivial example. Absolutely. I agree. And as my, my friend, John Welsh always says, the brain's currency is electrical activity and rhythms. And, uh, and so if you want to understand a disorder, you know, you should really look at this core way the brain really processes information and and you have all the tools and and the yeah. knowledge to yeah. to approach I, that and yeah sorry to interrupt but but actually we are therefore uh, some next steps for us are to record brain activity under a range of challenge conditions in the same children so that mm -hmm. we can really begin to understand what's the specificity of the impaired neural oscillatory activity. Because there are many studies in the literature now showing impaired oscillations in different conditions or in resting state data, but it's all done in different populations. The findings are all a little bit different. So what we really wanna do as a lab is to collect a large data set where we get really excellent phenotyping information And we get brain data for many different paradigms that challenge neurooscillatory activity in different frequency bands and see is there a specific frequency band that's not working well or a specific process and the processes that it engages to try and fill out the picture a little bit more. Fascinating. Tell me, so, so for your experimental approach, do you think you can develop it in a way that you could do in-home monitoring? That's to, a dream. That, that's that a is dream. an absolute dream. Yeah, we, and we think about it quite a bit, especially since COVID, I'd say the whole field thinks about it a lot more in neurodevelopmental conditions. You, you want to be able to do clinical testing at home, get your experimental data at home, do training at home. And so there are some devices that you can send to somebody's home that are relatively simple, but for recording EEG, for example, but they're not yet 
what I would call research reliable, where you feel confident that you know, you're, you're getting the same signal as you would in a lab that's going to be as reliable across people. So if you see differences from person to person, is that an instrumentation issue or does it represent differences across those individuals? But a lot of people are working hard at this problem and I think it's a really critical direction that I hope engineers are focusing their energies on. And um, that's definitely, you know, the, there are eye tracking systems now that are yeah. you can send home with different levels of precision. And, you know, what, once we get to the point where we can measure pupillometry and, you know, maybe send a, an iPad or whatever home and, and do somewhat controlled stimulation conditions, that's going to make all the difference for getting data from more impaired individuals or people with rare disorders, you know, because now you know, there, there aren't that many, right? It, it's by definition of a rare disorder, but if you can, you don't have to bring people to you, but you can do it remotely, that yeah. will make all the difference. Especially those kids are very sensitive, correct, for, for yeah. a different environment. And, you know, we did a Rett syndrome study and we spent two years characterizing their breathing and in the lab. And we had to throw away everything. You know, we yeah. started all over again because these kids were very agitated. You know, like the movement artifacts were like horrendous. Right. And only when we were able to send this home we got data that were actually, you know, reflecting on how the child really is and behaves. So, yeah, yeah, might have so, to reach out to you later or or go oh, look your papers. Oh my God! See yeah. How you did that? <laughs> uh, no, Debbie Wiesmeyer was my colleague, so okay. she, she was amazing here. Okay, yeah, thank you so much, and I hope you your follow up studies come to Journal of Physiology, and we totally appreciate your work and and I think it gives us general insights and in, in how the brain works, as you say in your website. So thank you so much, uh, Shlomit and Sophie. And thank I wish you, you a Nina. wonderful day. Okay. a pleasure. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.